Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show, guys. It is Tuesday night, June 23rd, 2020. Hope you guys are having a fantastic start to the week the first couple of days here. I am your host, Scott Fullerton. I'll be walking you through the show today. And in the studio, we have my guest intern, Han, tonight. She'll be pressing all the buttons for us and making the show sound good and play our songs for us. We hope you guys are ready to have a good evening of talk radio. We have just one interview tonight. This week, because we're getting ready for the big gay road trip, we're bringing the show down to one hour this week and probably next week to get things ready to roll. So it's going to be easy peasy kind of stuff today. Uh, last night, if you missed the show, and why would you darn it? We had our Music Monday episode. We love our little Music Monday. And my, uh, we had Zach Day as our special music correspondent for the evening. Of course, you know Zach was on The Voice on Team John Legend this year. And he's there every other Monday to give us some great tips into music of the week that we need to be looking out for. And then my special music guest yesterday, it was Joe Bissell, better known as The Machine. He's a fantastic singer-songwriter. He has a new single that just dropped last week called Honeydew. So we talked to him what he's been up to, and he's been doing a lot of virtual prides online. So if you missed that episode or any episode, please go check the Left of Straight Show archives right here on Blog Talk Radio, or you can just subscribe to us on your favorite podcast distributor. We're everywhere, guys. We're on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher. You think of a podcast distributor, we're going to be on it. Just look up under Left of Straight Show. And I hope you are following us on social media. For my social media, it's at Left of Straight. For Twitter and Instagram, that's at L-E-F-T-O-F. STR and the number eight. Following all my new and fantastic interns on Left of Straight Radio on Twitter and Instagram. That's at Left of Straight Radio, spelled the same way. So we have some fun stuff always going on over there, learning new things. So that's always exciting. Tonight, in just a couple of minutes, I'm going to have my one and only interview tonight with a fantastic, he's a writer. And he's the executive editor of the LGBT entertainment website, Queerty. It's also part of Q Media. 
and his name is David Reddish, and I'm very excited to have him on. I go to Query quite often to find different things to talk about for the show, and I've got some great guests off there, and he does some amazing interviews and uh, some fun content creation over there on Query. So David's going to be my special and only guest for the hour. He'll be on in just a few minutes here. Want to talk about the Big Gay Road Trip? As I said, we were starting, we will have live shows three weeks starting from yesterday, starting July 13th through August 13th, every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. We're going to do a live show coming at you from Palm Springs, California at the beautiful Indulge Resort in Palm Springs. And they are hosting us there for the month. You can check them out at www.indulge.com and that's I-N-N-D-U-L-G-E.com. They have beautiful landscape resort there. They have a pool. They have a jacuzzi. They have misters because it's hot as heck there in the summer. They have a barbecue pit for everyone to use. They have little cabanas around the pool with fans in them so you can lay under there if the heat gets too much and you're getting too much sun. It's a little interesting what's going to happen this year with the COVID kind of rearing its ugly head again. As you know, I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to make it down to Palm Springs. We didn't know what was happening. L.A. was one of the major lockdown stations. So uh, the Indulge Resort closed in March when everyone started to close up, and Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, ordered non-essential businesses to close. And it didn't open until just last week, June 10th, two weeks ago, actually, they opened up again. So I didn't think I was going to be going down this year, but owners John and Sandy were very kind and reached out and brought me back for another month. So speed ahead to go down there and do our live guest driving up from L.A. and uh, Santa Barbara and San Diego and all sorts of different places coming in. But COVID is starting to hit again all everywhere, especially in Texas and Arizona and Florida. So the governor of California just announced that it's mandatory to wear masks in all public areas. I'm guessing public means outside in the streets. I'm hoping a private resort, we're not going to have to wear it by the pool or it's going to have a real funky tan line when I come back. That's for sure. But yeah, it's going to be a very interesting trip this year. I'm driving across as I do every year. I'm going to leave Sunday, July 5th, right after the holiday, take a week to get over there, and then drive back at the end of the road trip on the 13th of August and come back. So I'm going to definitely go the northern route there because I don't want to go through Arizona and Texas and all these COVID states right now. So I'm going to go up through the northern section, probably go through Chicago and Salt Lake City and Vegas and go down Delhi that way. And I was hoping to come home the southern route because we have our good friends in Nashville. Zach, of course, our music uh, special correspondent, and Josh and Jeff, our uh, J&J Buzz pop culture correspondents on Wednesdays live in Nashville. So I wanted to visit them on the drive back up. And then Park City Lodge in Tennessee invited me up for a night. I had them on the show a month ago. So I really wanted to hit south on the way up. It just depends what's happening with COVID. So very interesting. I had a couple of guests that are kind of a little leery on going out, which I totally understand. So it's going to be a very, very interesting road trip this year. But we'll see what happens. It should be a lot of fun. We always try to have some good guests, and uh, we'll keep you 
Every step of the way, we'll let you know what's going on there and see what happens. And then on the two days that we're not live from Palm Springs, either do replays on um, Thursday, Friday, or I'll do some pre-tapes before I go. It just depends on how the guests go for that. So that's what's happening with Road Trip. In the news, not too much interesting thing in the news today. Uh, I love they had the Dr. Fauci uh, testified before Congress today about the coronavirus and the spread and everything. And, of course, Franklin Graham comes out afterwards, who uh, is an evangelical leader, even though he never has been a pastor. Um, But he's the son of uh, Billy Graham, of course. And he took to Facebook this afternoon and denounced Fauci, who's the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, who's been running this whole thing. He says that uh, science isn't truth. Only God is truth. So I guess we're not supposed to believe science anymore, according to him. So I thought that was kind of interesting stuff and analogy there. So, yeah, interesting things going on in the news today. But uh, that's about it. I don't have too much else to talk about. We're going to have David on in just a little bit. Um, I hope that you guys... We'll follow along on the road trip. Let us know what guests are. We're going to have you choose some of the paths. When I drive over, there's a couple places I want to stop at. One of them is being in Michigan City, Indiana, which is right up north on the Lake Erie. And they, over COVID, and there's I don't think they're still doing it. I have to double check. But during the early parts of COVID, when you couldn't go out to restaurants, and I'm not sure what, what Indiana is like right now, they... Um, had drag queens do your takeout food for you You're able to call ahead for for drag through take takeout so you're able to drive your car up and drag queens would come out and bring your your uh, food to you and so i wanted to go talk to the owner of that it's a gay-owned establishment so i think that'll be kind of fun uh there's some other different gay-owned establishments i'm going to hit back and forth through kind of make it a virtual pride fest as we go through all that it's going to be interesting things go ahead i know we're going to have david on just a little bit we're going to play one or two songs uh before david comes on then when i come back we're going to talk all about his writing life and what's happening with him so let's play out here with a little kenneth mogan and unlock your heart you're listening to the left of straight show right here on the left of straight radio network Show me where 
bottles up the wall, face down on the floor. Screaming, you ain't gonna take it no more. guys and gals we are back that was our buddy kenneth mogan with holy water guys i'm really looking forward to this next interview he is the executive editor with q media which among other things published the queerty.com website that i've been reading forever it's been a great source of all things lgbtq entertainment and dishy for the show here he's a published author with three books under his belt including Two from my favorite genre, sex, drugs, and superheroes, and one that is genre adjacent to my fascination with mythology called The Passion of Sergius and Bacchus. And if that isn't enough, he also designs and makes his own clothes. Let's get him on before my self-esteem entirely deflates. Please welcome to the Leftist Trade Show for the very first time, the handsome and charming Mr. David Reddish. David, how you doing, buddy? Hey, Scott. I'm doing all right. It's been a long day, but I get by. Well, I appreciate you capping it off with a little visit to the Left of Straight Show, my friend. Thank you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
you are one of the ones such as I that have been just a busy little beaver on this pandemic. There's no rest for the wicked, huh? How have you been holding up, uh, working like crazy? There's no shortage of stories out there, I can imagine. How are you holding up? No. I mean, it's a lot to handle, obviously, for everybody right now. But it's a lot to handle because my workload has increased um, simply because of what's going on right now and because uh, we're not able to take on freelancers at the moment. So. Um, right. I've been doing additional daily columns uh, for, you know, watch recommendations. With everybody at home, I figure it's good to recommend a nice gay-friendly movie uh, every day to check out and hopefully lift spirits. Um, and then, you know, going on with our usual coverage, because Hollywood hasn't stopped with the rollouts. Um, we've stopped some of the theatrical releases, of course, but there's plenty happening on streaming and on television right now. So. It has been nonstop for three months. Exactly. And there's always a little gay drama going on, or at least a Karen out there that has something to, to yeah. add to the conversation, right? <laughs> no, it never it never ends, right? Yeah. Exactly. Well, let's start with a little bit of background. I know you're a Chicago boy. Tell me about where you grew up and what kind of a kid were you? Oh, gosh. Uh, well, yes, I'm from the Chicago area, specifically a small town called Moments, Illinois, um, that's about 2,000 people. It's about 60 miles south of the city. Uh, nice. It's a far south suburbs. Um, you know, it's pr- primarily it's an agrarian community, very agricultural, lots of farmers. And uh, gosh, what kind of kid was I? Um, a frustrated one. I mean, I <laughs> frankly... <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I'm somebody that likes to travel and, and someone that's drawn to urban life, I think, just by nature. So while I appreciated having a cornfield for a backyard, because I did have a cornfield <laughs> for a backyard, um, you know, going out and, you know, uh, looking for snakes in the field and, and doing farmish things. I have terrible, terrible allergies. So I'm not a huge outdoor person, oh, at no. least not in the Midwest where there's all the pollen and everything. So I was kind of sickly and... Uh, I spent most of my time, you know, playing with my toys and watching movies. That was, uh, that was my solace from it all. Well, that's a good foray into what you do now. Where did the writing inspiration come from? Were you always a creative writer or drawer? Or how did that come about? I mean, yeah, I guess so. You know, it's funny because it's just something I take for granted. It's always been there. Right. But, um, you know, from the time I was little, I would, um, I would write my own stories, uh, you know, in, in a journal. We put, you know, put on plays in the garage or the living room or whatever. Um, I used to record like radio plays. I had a tape recorder. I would record different voices into it, um, like radio drama kind of thing. Um, but I never, okay. it wasn't until I was, yeah, it wasn't until I was in college that I really, it started to dawn on me that, that writing is really what I do. And so that's what I should be doing with my life. So um, when I left film school, I moved here to uh, Los Angeles to get into the business, uh, originally as either a screenwriter or a film critic, uh, but neither of those worked out, so I decided to be a novelist instead, and then that led to journalism. So here we are. There you go. Progression, progression. I like it. And talk a little bit about, you don't have to share your entire coming out story if you don't want, but I always like to know when did you oh, wow. first come out to yourself, and when did you kind of first your, find your LGBTQ tribe? Oh, wow. I haven't talked about that in a really long time. Um, 
You know, it's funny. So I recently found the date. I was going back through some old journals and found the exact day that I came out of the closet. And I think it was two days before Johnny Versace was murdered. Um, oh, wow. In 1998, I guess that would have been. Yeah, it was It was right before I turned 18. I uh, had been, you know, noticing that I was drawn to men more than women for some time. Um, this was in the summer, so uh, it was, you know, I wasn't in school at the time. But uh, I, I had been struggling with sexuality, you know, wanted to have girlfriends, wanted to date. But because I was interested in the things that I was, things like theater and drama and music and performance and writing, um, people automatically, and because, you know, frankly, I'm a tall, skinny white guy, you know, at, at that time I weighed about <laughs> 120 pounds and, you know, I'm six, two. So really skinny. Everyone assumed, oh, he's, he's this slightly femme artsy guy. He's gotta be gay. And I just didn't want to admit that everybody else was right. So I sort of dug <laughs> in for a few years, uh, before I finally came to accept it. And I didn't tell anybody until I got to college. Uh, the following year. So my official official coming out, I always say, was my 19th birthday because that was actually my first day of college. So, uh, ah, gotcha. yeah. And wow, you from there... you and everything. Yeah. I like it. You're an impressive gay. You know all that stuff. <laughs> I'm, I'm probably just a complete narcissist. I mean, that's that's really what it's about. <laughs> I but um, I found... I found my community pretty quickly in college. You know, um, I immediately started going to the Gay Student Union and uh, was just delighted to meet a lot of other out gay people, guys, girls, uh, trans folk, you know, people of all different religions, backgrounds, races, everything. And uh, it felt good to be validated in a way that I never was before. You know, being gay was always the worst possible thing you could be at that time in the 90s. So, right. Yeah, I hear you. It's uh, it's colleges. I think where most of us first found our tribe. Some got lucky. I mean, today's kids coming out at thirteen or so in high school is oh, yeah. a lot different than what we had going on. That is for sure. Um, Certainly. Talk a little bit about. I want to go through some personal stuff first before we go to the talk about this clothes designing. I was fascinated. You did a great <laughs> interview with our good friends, Dell and Emerson. They're great friends of the show, been on lots of times. Yeah. Um, and you talked about you're a clothes designer and I want to hear how this came about. Uh, well, it's a funny thing because I never really sought it out. So the short version is I did summer stock theater, which I'm sure you probably know what that is for you, for your listeners who may not know stock theater, uh, summer stock theater is in the summer and it's usually a lot of college students um, and some professional actors where you get together and you do several different shows uh, in rep with one another. So in our case, we did a comedy, a drama and a children's show. And I was cast in one of the shows. I was cast to play the rat in Charlotte's web Templeton um, and then I had to do crew for the other two shows. And at this time, this was in Illinois in the summer, so it's very, very hot and very humid. And the only right. place that had air conditioning was the costume shop. And I happen to be good friends with uh, the wardrobe supervisor and the costume designer. Uh, they both knew me. They both trusted me. So when they said, hey, would you want to do costumes? You know how to sew, right? I said, Sure. Uh, because that meant I would be able to need <laughs> air conditioning for the next six weeks rather than swelter and there die in go. a steam shop. So, um, so my, my sewing left something to be desired, you know, initially. And they were like, you have no idea what you're doing. Okay, come here. But I learned quickly. And so I had to learn everything 
you know, about a week, everything, you know, from needlepoint to, you know, the basic stuff to patterning, to sculpting, to painting clothes, to special effects costumes for all the animals and uh, from Charlotte's web, um, all of that. And um, when the show wrapped, I didn't do anything with it for a good 10 years and uh, instead suffered the fact that I, you know, am built like a giant gangly sunflower or something. I don't know what, you know, (laughs) tall and skinny. Like I could never find clothes that fit. And so it just sort of dawned on me one day, you know, I know how to do this. Why am I not doing it? So I went on Craigslist and I bought an old sewing machine. It was older than my mother. I bought it for like $25 and took it home and started tailoring all my clothes. And people noticed immediately. That was that was the big shocker that I think really sort of committed me to it was the first day I did this, I went out that night with friends. They were like, that shirt fits you really well. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I fixed it and I took them. And they were all just sort of flabbergasted. So it's like, well, when Not, it's this, how do you do you that for yourself? How do you figure that out for yourself? You know, have a have a size, you know, I mean, it takes it takes measurements. And, you know, sometimes it's as easy as you put. You know, if it's a shirt or something, you put the shirt on and you say, you know, I I generally don't pin. I eyeball it. I say that's how much needs to go in. And then I just put it on the machine and I take it in however I need to take it in and uh, put it on. And if it fits, we're good. So (laughs) that's very impressive. I like that. that You can just eyeball that. Very nice. So I remember one of my one of my uh, growing up jobs was I had worked for a uniform company and I had to learn how to do the markings for the tailor so the tailor shop could do it. And it's like, how would you do that for yourself? That just seems very random, but you have to have a very good eye for that. Impressive. And I mean, about... yeah, no, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to say, I mean, I mean, sometimes it takes more than one, more than one try, but um, you know, and, and with the patterning and everything, when you're, when you're actually building something from scratch, you just kind of have to get creative. But uh, that's also the adventure of it. So I like it. There you go. And I guess you can take the stitches out again and retry, I guess, right? I guess there's Depending no... on what you're doing. You know, if you're working with something <laughs> like leather, which I have, not, not in a sexual way. I've made, like, gloves and belts and whatnot. <laughs> uh, you, you can't, you know, you can take stitches out of leather and, and have it sort of look normal because you're punching holes in it. So... Um, yeah, sometimes it works, sometimes not. Uh, you just got to be good at covering it up, I think, if you're going to screw up. I love it. And what, do you, what would you say is your most creative piece that, that you've enjoyed making? Oh, wow. Well, I usually make Halloween costumes every year because that's where you really get to have fun. It's more than just making, you know, a jacket or a shirt or something. So, um, you know, I've gone as Magneto from the X-Men several times over the years with different Magneto looks, depending on the movie that just came out. Uh, I've done the Joker. I've done uh, uh, Jedi robes, Luke Skywalker, uh, old Luke Skywalker from The Last Jedi. That one I spent a lot of money and time on, and it came out really, really beautifully. So uh, that one I'm really proud of. That, That was the one where I had to work with leather to make gloves and his gauntlets and his belt pouches and everything. So it was a process. I love all of that. That is awesome. Well, that's a good segue because we're going to go into the comic years here. We're going to talk about the book, but you were Comic-Conning way before this book came. Talk about 
your first fascination with comics and what is your go-to comic genre? Well, I mean, I've always been a lover of superheroes. That's really where it starts for me. You know, I'm of a certain age where, you know, we had Superman. That was something I watched from the time I was very, very small on, on video. And later, you know, the Tim Burton Batman, which was formative for me because that was the first movie I can ever remember seeing where I had to beg my parents because I was so young. And it was a PG-13 movie, which was quite scandalous at the time to take a kid to see it. Um, and then my dad finally took me over my mother's objections. It was, I don't know that it was a happy time for them around the house, but you know, it was just blown away by it. And so after that, I was always drawn to Batman, you know, and later when we had the animated Saturday morning cartoons of Batman and the X-Men, uh, I got into those and I just started reading, uh, the comics and was really impressed by how much more mature they were and how much more philosophical they were than anything we got for a very long time. Um, so, you know, my, my go-to superhero has always been Batman, uh, though I also am a huge fan of the X-Men, and I certainly read other titles beyond that. Um, but, uh, you know, something like Watchmen, for example, the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons graphic novel, just blew me away as a writer um, because it was so adult and it was so profound. And right. uh, it it sort of made me realize, you know, that's sort of the tipping point where you realize we can truly do anything with this and you can do anything with superheroes and you can, you know, it, it doesn't have to be a cartoon. It can be a human drama. So, um, you know, later on when we got the Christopher Nolan Batman films, for example, I feel like the film genre caught up to what comics had been doing and we're finally that good. So um, right. that's just been a huge consumption. Comic-Con I'd heard about. Uh, I didn't have any real ambition to go, but a friend invited me the year I moved to Los Angeles. And, I mean, t you ask about finding your tribe. That was where I was like, oh, my gosh. I went into it thinking I was the nerdiest <laughs> person alive. Like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm, this, this is going to be it. And I learned very, very quickly, no, I got nothing on these people, and I'm in way over my head here. <laughs> Um, but it, you know, it, it felt like coming home. It was just, it was just the celebration of something I loved and something I could share with other people without judgment, without them looking at me sideways. And I could say something, you know, about something, you know, bizarre about remember when Jean-Paul Valley was Batman and that one issue and they would know exactly what I meant and they would have their own <laughs> thoughts and we could share it together. And so that was uh, that was a really special experience for me, and that ultimately is where the sex directed superheroes uh, stories come from. So, well, let's segue into that because amazing, where you did these two books uh, a few years apart, but talk about yeah. um, the character because the characters are very detailed and very kind of not what people might first expect. I love the direction you went here. Talk about the oh. first book. Well, thank you. Well, the first one I originally had tried to write as a screenplay. You know, I mentioned that I was trying to be a screenwriter, um, and a few things happened. One being that I could not make it work as a script, it, it, because I realized it was more about how people thought rather than how they acted, or rather than a, than a strong plot. Um, right. so I started working on other things, but then the other thing that happened was we had the big writer's strike in 2008 out here, which just kind of derailed 
everything. And, you know, I had had some close calls with agents and with, with producers who were interested in my work and were interested in, in, in bringing me on and building up my, my resume and investing in my talent. And I knew all that was just going to stop. Everybody warned me, you know, nothing's going to sell. You're, you've been set back at least five years. There's no way because all the, the big name writers in town, they're all home. They're all working on their own spec scripts. And those are going to be what people want to read right away. And, right. you know, I couldn't argue with that. Um, so I went back to this, this idea about doing a Comic-Con story. Um, actually, and I don't even know if I've ever told him this, but my friend Darren Stein, uh, who directed the film Jawbreaker and uh, GBF, if you've seen those, um, yeah. he suggested, wow. he said, you've got to do this Comic-Con story. Um, so I, I, I thought about it and I thought about it and realized, what if I just did it as a book? Um, around the time of the writer's strike, I started reading the works of Hunter Thompson, uh, who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las right. Vegas, and uh, Carrie Fisher, yes, Princess Leia, Carrie Fisher, um, who was an <laughs> incredible writer. Her novel Postcards from the Edge was really what nailed it because I realized you could make the story about the way people thought rather than a plot that needed to pull the story forward. It was more about evolution of thought. And so I, I, you know, me having been an actor as a kid, just sat down one day and I said, okay, who is this person? How does he think? And the story just started coming. And so um, the characters that I met are all inspired by uh, people and stories that I've met over the years, uh, not just at Comic-Con, but people from, you know, life, from, from working in a real estate office or from going to high school or summer camp or whatever it was they all started to come out and it just became, you know, in the same way Comic-Con was a celebration of love. It became about me celebrating the people that I've loved and the moments in my life that I think I felt loved and I felt loved for other people. Um, and so it was, it was just a pleasure to write. And, uh, you know, that, that's what got my career finally moving. So it's a good thing. I love it, though. I think that's so amazing that you're able to take that passion and kind of, I love the names of it. I thought there's some creative names in there. I like that yeah. it's, it's a little dark, which is kind of cool, especially the second one, the, which we'll yeah. talk about in a second. But uh, I like the kind of twists and turns you have there. Um, talk. Let's go into the second book. The first one, I mean, I, the title is in and of themselves are great. The, the, the second part of the, a savage journey into the wretched hive of scum and supervillains for the first book. Yes. And then conquest of the planet of the geeks, sex, drugs, and superheroes too. Like I said, a yes. lot darker, but very kind of cool. Bringing your same characters aboard before you introduce the other ones. Talk about what made that book come to life for you. Well, um, it's a funny thing. So when I was trying to sell the first book, uh, my friend, the author, Tyler Compton, uh, suggested to me, when you pitch this to agents, say it's part of a series. And I said, but it isn't part of a series. He said, just tell them that anyway, because everybody wants a series <laughs> right now. So I said, yeah, it's part of a series. And uh, one thing that happened was that I really fell in love with the characters and they just sort of stayed with me. Um, the other was that I started, and I started to see this, this future for them. So at a certain point after the book came out, it was obvious to me based on the reader response uh, and based just on my own feelings that I wanted to do another one. 
Um, but I didn't just want to do the same thing again. You know, I didn't want it to be a formula. Uh, and I wanted to explore different themes. So if the first one is about this joy and celebration of feeling like you're an outsider and finding your tribe, the second one needed to be about isolation. And it needed to be about, uh, you know, despair and, and how do you fight that. Um, so, so revisiting the characters again, I wanted to take them to a darker place. Uh, in hopes that when I finally get around to writing the third one, I can have a great synthesis where it's, you know, it's the second coming, sort of like the Star Wars trilogy, where if you watch the first one, it's, you know, the original movie from 77, it's, it's uh, you know, just all about joy and life and, and fun. And the second one, The Empire Strikes Back, is much more pensive and it's much more introspective. Right. I, I wanted to do something similar to that to strike the contrast so that when I go and do the third one, it can just be this, this incredible explosion of, of this collision of different ideas, you know, sort of like mixing matter and antimatter where it's just pure energy, you know? You are so clever. I love the, your thought process. I think that's <laughs> so awesome. Very, very, you're just an amazing writer. And in between both of these books, you come up with a book based on a true story, Passion of Sergius yeah. and Bacchus. I'm a, like I said, I'm a huge mythology geek. So anything that has anything to do with Greece and Rome, I'm there for. But this is an actual true story. You said you actually have uh, documentation, yeah. everything. Where did it come across? Yeah. Where did you come across the basis of this? Well, I'm somebody that has always had a really strong interest in religion and uh, religious history. And so I was, I was at a point in my life where I was reading more about religion, just sort of exploring my own thoughts on faith. I was raised as a Methodist, Protestant Christian, you know, in a pretty religious household, actually. Um, so in, in, in coming to terms with the fact that I was gay and that I was an adult and seeing, you know, the way that queer people are demonized by uh, so many different religions around the world, not just Christianity, it led me on this, this sort of spiritual journey. So I was doing more reading about um, homosexuality within Christianity and stumbled on the work of the scholar John Boswell, uh, who had uncovered the passion myth of Sergius and Bacchus. Uh, so I read his work and was able to get my hands on the original uh, rituals and passion narrative. And I did a little bit more research. It was, it was not easy to find, by the way, uh, uh, any information about Sergius and Bacchus because they're extremely obscure saints in the Western world, less so in the East. Um, but I was able to sort of strip down, okay, this is who they would have been. This, is, you know, this was an idea that was added later, sort of what you have to do in the Gospels. If you want to get to, if you want to, get to the Jesus of history, you have to strip away what they, you know, what did people say about him later, what was added later, what was embellished, what would have you know, getting back to what actually would have been happening at the time and what was he trying to tell people in that time. Right. Uh, so in doing that with Sergius and Bacchus, it automatically put me at a really interesting period in history, um, which is pagan emperor of Rome, uh, Julian, uh, who had, uh, so he was the nephew of Constantine who converted the Roman Empire to Christianity. Julian converted it back to paganism because he thought Christianity was anti-Roman by nature because Jesus was a criminal in Rome. Uh, so the question then to me became, what does it mean if you're a Christian living in that time, living in that time under Rome, 
what does it mean if you are gay in that time and you are a Christian and you are a Roman? And, you know, I was more interested in the idea of faith. What is it that inspires somebody to die for something they just believe, not for something they can prove, not for, you know, not, not for, not for their country, not for, not for anything else, but just for a belief, a, a belief, something that you say, I can never prove this. I'm just going to believe it anyway. Um, and that, what I realized in looking at that was that's sort of what love is. You know, you, you see what people do. You know, people give you gifts. That's a sign of affection. People give you kisses. That's a sign of affection. But ultimately, what love comes down to is trust. You are going to believe this person has your best interests in mind and cares for you, you know, more than anyone else just by believing it, that, that you know, it, it is this, this, this trust. It's also belief. So ultimately, Sergius and Bacchus and their story is a meditation on the nature of love and faith um, and, you know, bringing to light the fact that, yes, gay people were completely welcomed and accepted within uh, early Christianity. And, yes, they could be married to each other. Now, I have to add a caveat to that, which is that it, they didn't call it marriage at the time. It was actually considered something even higher than marriage you know, in terms of sacrament. Um, it, it's a very, very fascinating period. Um, and, you know, most of the characters in the book were real people, um, many of whom, you know, I was able to document this is what they were actually like, this is what they actually looked like, where they actually lived. Um, the Emperor Julian that I mentioned it was an amazing, prolific writer, so I was able to get back to his words and figure out what, you know, what motivates a man to demonize an entire population of people when he doesn't really believe in God himself? Um, mm. You know, because Christianity was not what it is now. You know, you're talking about 300 years after the life of Jesus. It was still very much a, very much a grassroots movement. Um, right. And, and, you know, that also got to the question of, you know, people making choices. Um, you know, who do you choose to honor, your best friend or the person you love? You know, do you honor God first? Do you honor country first? Where, where do the priorities lie? Um, and so that just, that it, it became a fascinating two-year journey uh, of research and writing and pushing myself in a way I hadn't before as a writer. Um, and it was a very satisfying experience, I'm happy to say. So. Absolutely amazing. Like I said, thinking man's writer. I love that. I like. <laughs> I love to hear the stories behind the story, and that is very, very cool, my friend. Thank you for sharing that. That's and no wonder it was the Lambda Literary Award winner. That had to be kind of exciting as well. Congratulations! Well, I, 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 thank you. I didn't actually win, but I was nominated. Uh, it's an honor just to be nominated. Uh, that was that was a very <laughs> nice morning when my publisher called and woke me up to tell me uh, because I never really. I didn't think it was possible, and I don't think he thought it was possible either. So uh, it was it was very very satisfying, and that was really what jump started my my professional writing career uh, in the sense that I was able to start writing full time and uh, get a job as a creative writer with different outlets. So that's fantastic. Very fortuitous. Did you go to the award show in New York? Did you go? I did. I did. Um, I flew out, and it was you know it was a thrilling experience to be there, to connect with friends. I have a lot of friends in New York. I love New York City. It's, it's just this magnificent cosmic place. It's, there's nowhere else like it. 
Um, so getting to fly out for the show and meet some of my colleagues, they had open bar. That was nice too. Uh, getting to, you know, being there and John Waters, uh, was getting a lifetime achievement award. Um, you know, other great luminaries from the community, people like Rita Mae Brown, people like, uh, Kate Bornstein was supposed to be there, but she was sick, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, Alan Cumming, just a, an incredible mix of wow. people and it was sort of uh it was a sweet dessert to what was a very 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 long meal so <laughs> that's fantastic i love hearing that very very good super yeah. duper let's go in let's continue the writing and so much to talk about we don't have much time but as long as you're willing to go we'll go a little bit longer tonight since you're my only interview sure, on tonight, yeah. but i have so much to talk about um Talk of, about, I mean, you have these other things. Like you said, you were writing quite a bit. You have different things. Not Do you have a television sitcom that I saw, The Temps, something about called Embellishment, uh, Sycophant, Algonquin Hills. Talk about yes. where these stories, ideas, where are they at in your process? Is it something you have to, you're so busy. Do you constantly kind of go back and tinker with them a bit, or are they just kind of sitting there ready when the time is right? Well, they sit there. I don't know how ready they are when the time is right. Um, though, you know, it's funny. Those were all scripts, uh, pilots for TV shows or screenplays that got attention, and they were things that I worked really hard on and uh, hopefully developed my, my career as a writer, uh, my craft, by working on them. Uh, in many ways, they were explorations of similar themes that I think I, I find in my novels um you know they were genre pieces um sycophant for example was a vampire story that i really really loved working on where uh it was sort of being a vampire was like being a queer person um uh embellishment was about what if the president of the united states came out of the closet uh what would that do to world relations what would that do to his standing with the american people um, Algonquin Hills is about life in a small town, similar to something Larry McMurtry might do. Like the last picture show was my big, um, that was my sort of guiding light when I was working on it, what I had in mind. Um, yeah. And the temps was wow. an interesting experiment in sort of hybridizing. I wanted it to be a straight sitcom, but the people I was working on it with at the time wanted it to be a reality scripted hybrid. Um, and we did get, you know, interest from different networks, from um, cable and, and networks at the time, but nobody was quite sure how to approach it. Uh, and because I was a completely unknown quality, you know, quantity, nobody would take a, tri a chance on it. So mm -hmm. it's just sort of what I had to deal with, you know. Right. Um, there, I, I would well, definitely like to do more screenwriting but uh that's not something i have time for at the minute at the moment right i bet oh my goodness well you've been at queerty now you started back in august of 2017 talk about your journey there did you start as freelance did you start as the editor what what's your journey been with uh q media well with with q digital q media uh i the short version is I just got extremely lucky. Uh, my friend, uh, Jace Peoples, who was a writer at The Advocate uh, and also was entertainment editor for, at Queerty, uh, was leaving the job. He was going to go pursue uh, another opportunity. And so he, he knew I was looking for work at the time and called me and said, um, would you be willing to go in for this? Should, you know, would, should I put your name out? So he connected me with Chris Bull, the uh, editor-in-chief of Queerty. And we hit it off. And so I just started 
writing uh, whatever I could. It was a little bit in the beginning, and I was trying to work other jobs because they didn't have the budget uh, for a full-time entertainment reporter at the time. Uh, but then that grew and grew over time, and uh, I decided at a certain point, I don't know that I really discussed this with anybody, but I wanted to push what Queerty could do as a brand and uh, the kinds of uh, coverage that we were doing. So we were doing a lot of, you know, listicles or very short, uh, short stories at the time. I wanted to do more reviews or, you know, film essays, stuffy things that I did in film school. Um, <laughs> but Chris really, Chris, Chris was concerned that, that we wouldn't have the readership for it, but he suggested interviews. So I had never, you know, really done interviews like that before, but that became something that I realized I could make a story out of just connecting with somebody. So I started going to different film festivals and I started interviewing different filmmakers, um, focusing on their creative pro process and their inspirations. And it quickly became very, very satisfying uh, creatively for me. And I think, uh, I hope for the people I'm writing about also, and certainly for our bosses at Queerty because uh, we saw a big upswing in traffic and um, because we became, the, the industry came to look at us in a different way. Uh, that we were doing, you know, some thoughtful coverage um, that was different from something we'd ever done before. So uh, that eventually led to me uh, going full-time with Queerty and uh, joining the editorial board. And I'm proud of the work I do there. I'm, I'm very lucky to, to have it. So uh, well, broken let me some big stories over the years. Opportunity yeah. and talent, my friend. Your talent, like I said, is there in oh. spades. But I, God, I do love Queerty. Well, I, I, I just I know good writing, so I, I've been around this business. I'm not, I'm not in the business, but I've been around it enough where I know and I appreciate good writing. So good on you for Thank that. You. But I just think Queerty done some really great. There's I mean, there's so many aggregators out there that'll just pull stories from here, there, and the other. I think you guys have really made a conscious effort to put forth some ideas that are original. You got your pulse on the finger out there somehow. I don't know how you're doing it without all your <laughs> freelancers right now, but you really do seem to have the pulse of what's going on out there. Uh, talk about that work. It's got to be difficult with a short staff. It is. Um, it is difficult with a short staff. Um, but, you know, one of the things, like I say, one thing that I really wanted to do when I took over as entertainment editor was change the kinds of work that we were doing and create more original content rather than just aggregated uh, content. Right. There's nothing wrong with aggregated content, of course, but you sort of like to be the one to initiate things sometimes. Um, so in, 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 in the kinds of work that I have done personally, I've had a few stories that have come out and done extremely well that have become worldwide headlines, uh, which is, is very inspiring. Um, you broke Bert for me and Ernie, and, dude. So, you had Bert yeah, Ernie. Yeah, Bert and Ernie. <laughs> I did out Bert and Ernie. Um, well, so it's a funny story because Mark Saltzman uh, is really the one that deserves the credit because he was the one that wrote the Bert and Ernie sketches for 15 years or whatever it was. Uh, and the one that was actually willing to go on the record and talk about this. Now, I met Mark because I'd written about another film that he worked on with his late husband. And he sent me a very, very sweet note uh, thanking me. I, you know, I had never met him. I, did, I 
didn't know that he even read Queerty, but he sent me this very, very kind note saying, thank you so much. You know, this is a project that I'm so proud of that I think is overlooked. And I think it's some of my best work. It was some of Arnie's best work. Well, it turns out we're neighbors. So uh, we live in the same neighborhood. (laughs) So we started to meet for lunch and Mark's just uh, an incredibly charming man, obviously very, very intelligent, very um, uh, passionate, funny, um, just a joy to be around and to chat with. And uh, when he mentioned almost, you know, bashfully that he'd written for Sesame Street and knew Jim Henson and the Muppet performers, I said, well, wait a second, hang on, there's a story in this. Um, And I pushed the story for a very long time, but somehow I think I was the only one that had faith in it in the beginning. Um, Mm. I I don't know that anybody that I was working with really knew what I was trying to do. Uh, So I just kind of went and did it um, on my own, you know, without getting the proper clearance and came back and said, here, I have this, you know, I'm not going to charge you for it. Let's just, let's just go. Um, And uh, when, if I, you know, when, when I had the opportunity to sit with Mark, we sat down for a couple hours and I just asked him, you know, whatever I could, you know, just the questions that came to mind. And I knew because he spoke so affectionately of his time writing Burton Ernie, I had a feeling I knew what he was going to say. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, you know, chatting about it, it's like, this is, this is the question that people that like me who grew up with Sesame street and who are queer, this is always in the back of our minds because that was one of the first same sex couples we had exposure to. Now, whether or not you see them as a gay couple or a sexual couple or whatever, the idea that you're going to see two men happily living together who very obviously love one another, that is a huge, huge deal when there is nobody gay on television at all, certainly in kids' television at that time. Um, So when Mark said, yeah, absolutely, they were a gay couple. When I was writing, you know, he said when I was writing, them, that was the only way I understood them. That was me and my, you know, my late husband, Arnie. People used to call us Bert and Ernie. You know, even in the writer's room, people would, would say that. Um, so I said, this is, this is something and people are going to respond to it. I didn't know that people would lose their minds because that's what <laughs> happened for a week. Uh, and it was a very intense time for me and especially for Mark because uh, neither of us were really expecting this to happen. Um, you know, it was, uh, the story came out and I had told right. friends that, you know, what it would be that we were going to talk about Bert and Ernie and that you know, he was going to say Bert and Ernie are gay. Um, and none of them, <laughs> I was mad later because I don't think any of them took me seriously or paid that close attention. But then, you know, the story was up and about a day later, my phone just started erupting in the middle of the night. And, uh, I woke up that morning to, uh, I had messages from all over the world in different languages, in German, in Dutch, like in Spanish, you know, uh, and I saw that it was picked up by other outlets and um, just thought it was great. And then the next thing I knew, it was on CNN, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what did we do? So I made sure Mark was okay. He had reporters, you know, camped on his doorstep in his driveway, and he said, you know, well, well, I'm not answering the door, but uh, they're welcome to stay, you know. They're there. Okay. You know, I made, I was more concerned about him than, than I was for my, you know, myself, but um, I love that it got him attention. His career, you know, is back in high gear. He just had a new play, a musical play come out. that's nominated for a bunch of awards. Um, He's, you know, he's thriving right now. He's really happy. And uh, it was, 
it was just a big thrill to see how much it meant to people. Um, right. That that was so satisfying. Just so, so satisfying. Um, that is an awesome and, and story. Inspiring. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very, very strange feeling because at a certain point, I don't think it really had anything to do with me. Um, it was more about other people's reactions to the idea. But, mm, uh, right. you know, you know, knowing how that changed. You know, Sesame Street this month put out a happy pride message, which is unprecedented. Um, yeah. They've never done anything like that before. So, the, you know, I, I hope in my own small way that I contributed to that and, um, you know, towards, towards people feeling included, towards people, you know, towards the visibility of the community. Um, it feels really, really good. So... It should. Very good. I love that story. And yeah, that's got to be a once in a lifetime experience. Hopefully not just once in a lifetime, but it's got to be definitely an eye-opening experience when you live it for the first time. I can only imagine. That is pretty wild. wild. Yeah. Um, And like you said, you're bringing some great things while we're doing this COVID quarantine stuff. I love the Daily Dose. I mean, the last two are two of my favorite movies, Best Little Whorehouse in Texas and Priscilla, I think I saw a million times yeah. um, talk about bringing that kind of column to life. It's really cool. Are, have you, are you starting with movies that you've seen personally? Are you going through archives? How are you, how are you picking these movies? Movies I've seen personally, you know, I'm a movie guy. I just, I, I have seen so many in my lifetime. Um, but, you know, the idea was that um, people need levity right now and people need something to watch because they're stuck at home. So right. it became a fabulous opportunity uh, for me to use my platform to champion films that uh, brought me great joy or to champion filmmakers that I think are, are sort of unsung heroes uh, to get people to see films that are overlooked. Um, and, and it's been really wonderful to do. It's a lot of work. I won't lie about that, but um, it's, it's, it's just been terrific and you know we do have a readership for it uh the column is popular and uh hopefully people are enjoying the the movies you know that's the the important thing now you picked some really good ones and i remember you talked to Dylan emerson you were actually yeah. i'm a little older than you and you were actually friends with the one that making love which was like my very first movie ever oh, yeah. that was so controversial back in the time but there's been such an evolution of LGBTQ films that is kind of amazing. And there's so many great ones out there. Have you done beautiful thing yet? I'm, I'm I have not done beautiful thing yet. So it's, it, it, it's funny because That's I have had requests to do, I've had requests to do beautiful thing, but there's some issue with the distribution. I haven't found it on a streaming platform yet. So mm, um, okay. it's, it's not one I feel like I should recommend because it's just going to frustrate people. Um, exactly. But I'll, I'll take that was my first it. introduction yeah. to Tony Collette. I love that movie so much. It was so good. Oh well, and she's it, she. It doesn't get too much better. Tony Collette's incredible, absolutely amazing actor. Right. So she's come up in a few things I recommended actually. Well, let's talk about just some some general entertainment for a bit. Well, how did things come across your radar? Um, do you have people reaching out to you 90% of the time now? Are you still reaching out 90% of the time? How do some of these stories uh, make your radar? I mean, it's certainly a mix. Uh, So I'm happy to say that uh, 
the industry has taken notice of the kind of work that we're doing. And so I have a lot of, a lot of emails, a lot of publicists who, uh, nice. who will reach out to us now or reach out to me personally. We'll reach out to uh, the site just, just generally uh, to submit for coverage. You know, I, we don't cover everything we're requested to do. And there are some things that, you know, that I know that are coming that's, you know, something that I might have a personal connection to that I will purposely seek out. Um, mm, but, right. but really, you know, it's, it's what is the queer interest of this? It, it comes down to that, that question fundamentally. And is this quality? You know, I don't want to recommend stuff that's total garbage. And there's sure. a lot of garbage out there. <laughs> so um, True that. it's a constant cycle. Mm. It, it, it requires a lot of work and a lot of organization, um, particularly during film festival periods, because there's just there's so much to look at. Um, right. And my big rule that I tell everybody is you've got to let me see the movie first, which I guess not all reporters even bother. I don't know why you would not bother to see the thing that it is you're reporting on, but it's right. second nature to me that you would want to see it. So, um, and that's, believe it or not, has come, uh, that's been a problem in the past where I was told, no, we can't let you see the movie. Well, what if you just don't talk about the movie? And I'm like, well, what am I, you know, isn't that what we're supposed to be talking about? You know, I'm fine to meet with, whatever writer, actor, director, whoever it is, but I need to see, like, I need to have some context for what we're talking about here uh, because otherwise it's just sort of an aimless fluff conversation. Right. Um, right. Exactly. So th there's a lot going on. We also, you know, we get reader tips. Um, a story that I'm very proud of that I did earlier this year uh, was an investigative journalism piece uh, that somebody tipped me off to on Facebook about uh, the drag race, uh, the RuPaul's Drag Race contestant, Sherry Pye. I don't know if you remember mm. this controversy. Um, but, I do uh, remember it, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know you were tipped off to it. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> well, uh, you know, and again, it's so much of it, everything in the business is, or, or everything in life is just you're in the right place at the right time. Uh, somebody, uh, one of our contributors tipped me off to, he had seen this post about a man who said he was, he was sexually harassed by Sherry Pye. Um, I hadn't seen that season of Drag Race yet, so I didn't know who Sherry even was. Um, but I looked into it, and I said, you know, I think there's something here. So um, Ben Shimkus, who was the first man to come forward, I got in touch with personally, and uh, he said that he knew of others. So he put me in touch with some of the other guys. And uh, the thing, the reason I bring it up, the thing I really want to stress is just how brave they were to talk about it. Um, because right. saying that you got catfished by a drag queen or that you were sexually harassed by a drag queen is not going to, you know, it, it's not something we hear too much. Um, and the idea of men coming out and saying, yes, men can be victims of sexual assault too. We can be sexually harassed too. That was right. something I really wanted to underline myself because it's something I've experienced personally. Um, and with the Me Too movement, I'm so glad that women are being recognized, that they're able to come forward with their stories. But there are men who are also sexually harassed, and I think there's still a stigma there. So in doing this piece, my hope was that it would uh, allow men to be able to talk about this without fear of shame. Um, so I worked very, very hard uh, on the piece. It did extremely well for us, and uh, I'm, I'm quite proud of it. And like I say, quite proud of all the, the brave guys that were willing to talk. Uh, and so many more came forward afterwards. It was really, really shocking. I missed that. You're going to have to email that over to me because I want to read that if I can't find it in the archives. 
That's amazing. Good for you on that. That's great. I love that. Thank you. Uh, and I'll send it to well, you. I, I think you would enjoy it. I really would. And, so I, and I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I'll appreciate the content. Um, I do want, I mean, we're running a little long. If you don't mind, I do want to kind of talk about what's happening in pop culture right now. Do you mind sticking on a little bit longer yeah. here? No, that's fine. Right, Thank you. I appreciate it. Because I, I love talking pop culture. I love talking entertainment. It's what I base my whole show on. So I want to get some of your thoughts on different things here. Uh, you and I are both superhero geeks big time. I love everything yeah. we're talking about in there. And we have, of course, Joel Shoemaker who passes away. And now we have yeah. Michael Keaton rumors. Let's talk about yeah. first a tribute to Joel Shoemaker. And did you read Sam Irvin's Facebook post today by chance? I didn't. Sam and I are friends. I didn't see. Uh, I don't think I saw him posting anything about Joel. Did I? I don't, or yeah, Sam? Sam outed read. Joel, didn't he? I think exactly. I heard this rumor. Exactly. Once. Yeah. Right. And he put a great post about it today on his Facebook. So when you have a chance, go read that because it was an amazing post by Sam. Um, so yeah, yeah, I thought that was very interesting. But talk about your thoughts on that because iconic Batman. Speaking of iconic Batman. Um, talk about yeah. Joel, then talk about the Michael Keaton, what you've heard. Well, um, Joel, uh, by all accounts, was a charming man. And he was somebody that I tried to get to for a couple of years. I really wanted to sit down with him to just talk about what does it mean to be an out gay man directing movies at the height of the AIDS epidemic in the 80s? You know, what does it mean to be an out gay man directing the biggest opening of all time, which he had when his first Batman movie, Batman Forever opened. Um, I unfortunately didn't get to him. Um, but uh, he, you know, all the interactions I've heard about was a delightful man. I don't know that, that he was the best director overall. He certainly made some good movies. He also made some not good movies. Um, that's a career. That's the way it works for most people. Um, his two Batman right. movies, I think, are eyesores. It, you know, rest in peace, Joel, but I hate those <laughs> movies. <laughs> Right. They're so bad. Um, they're just they're everything you know that there's nothing I want to see in a Batman movie that is on the screen in either of those films. Um, they just no, they no, it doesn't work. And they're of their time, uh, and that's fine. But not as good as Batman gets. Um, now, in terms of the Keaton, uh, the Keaton rumblings, from what I have gleaned. It is true that he will be coming back to play Batman again um, in the Flash movie that's set to star Ezra Miller. Um, So so for people who are – I have to set this up a little bit, I guess. So the idea with this, the title of the movie is called Flashpoint, and it's based on a very famous uh, comic book story that involves a lot of time travel and multiple universes where Barry Allen, the Flash – is using his speed powers to change history, and he's jumping from universe to universe. Um, one of those universes is apparently going to be the Gotham City of the Tim Burton Batman movies. Uh, two of those will be in continuity, the ones with, uh, you know, with the Jack Nicholson Joker, the Michelle Pfeiffer Catwoman, uh, and he will be back playing Bruce Wayne. We don't know how large his role will be. I think that's still being decided right now, though Warner Brothers, based on what I've heard, would like it to be a significant one. I don't know if he's even going to put on the suit because he hated wearing the suit. It was awful. And granted, right. the technology has changed, but, you know, they basically had to coat him in rubber. It's not the most comfortable thing in the world. Um, I, I 
thought Keaton was all right as Batman. I think we've had better Batman since. Um, but certainly for that time and for what they were doing, he was very good. And that was a world I would have loved uh, to explore even more. I would have loved to have Burton done at least one other movie and, you know, shown us more of this universe because it was just really fun and, and interesting and unique to exist within right. that world. Um, so I think, I, I think that Warner Brothers wants to take advantage of that. Um, there's talk of him doing possibly multiple movies, of there being more exploration of the character. Who knows how any of that's going to play out, particularly because he's now also employed by the Marvel Universe, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, playing the Vulture in the Spider-Man movies. Um, there's no telling where exactly. it's going to go, but I'm here for it. Right. So. Me too. Are you a DC television fan? I'm a huge TV fan. You know, you know oh. I'm not. I I I tried. I really did. I tried Arrow. I tried The Flash. Um, I tried. You know, there were a few more in there. You know, I I haven't gotten into Supergirl very much. I've only seen one or two episodes. Uh, no Legends of Tomorrow for me. Um, Batwoman. I enjoy Batwoman. It's interesting they're going to be replacing Ruby Rose because I thought she was That'd actually be very, very good. Interesting. On it. Yeah. Um, I'll be interested to see how they write themselves out of that, but. Um, you know, I, I love Greg Berlanti. I've met him. I've interviewed him. He's a, a warm, friendly, delightful man, and he has done great things for the queer community. Um, he's done great things for uh, the CW. You know, they have their just their juggernaut of, of shows that he produces. Um, yeah, he should know, have his he, own he, wing or building by now, the Greg Berlanti building. I'm pretty so sure he does. Or if, he, if he doesn't, <laughs> he will eventually. Um, he certainly earned it. Um, but I mean, that's also, it's not my, it's not what I love about superheroes. Um, those shows tend to be cartoony, I think by design. And I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Um, right. It's just not my taste. And so, um, you know, if I'm going to sit down and watch a superhero movie about the flash or, or Supergirl, I, I want it to have a certain amount of psychological depth, a certain amount of emotional depth and, you know, this is something, this is a good segue to talking about something like the Marvel Universe. I loved the Marvel Cinematic Universe when it started. I can't stand to sit through those movies now because they've become so mm. simplistic. I need, right. in order for me to believe a superhero movie, I need to believe in real danger. And I don't ever believe there is real danger when I'm watching the Marvel Cinematic Universe or, you know, a, a superhero show for television, simply because there's only so much they can do in terms of the content. Good point. I like that. Good point. You've argued yeah. your case well, sir. I like it. Sorry, and that's still one of my dream interviews to go to Vancouver. I still still want to go to Vancouver to interview him just because I am a geek on anything that. But I agree with you 100% on that. But let's go yeah. a little Greg Berlanti adjacent. We have Love, Simon that came out. Yeah. I want uh, My question for you as a writer, what do you think of binging television series? I'm kind well, of on the it. fence, but tell me what yeah. your thoughts are. I mean, well, Talk, I love you tell it. Me your but... thoughts and I'll tell you mine. Okay. Well, well, I love binging television, uh, and I love Love, Simon. Incidentally, I think it's a beautiful thing that Greg Berlanti did uh, and shows off his sensitivity as a director. Uh, and the new series, Love, Victor, is excellent, too. But in terms of binging, I'm somebody that likes – 
a certain amount of story momentum. And I always have felt that when the story really has momentum, when I'm really into characters and a plot and I can't wait to see what happens next, I'm on the edge of my seat, it is a cold shower to have the credits roll and go, <laughs> oh, I have to wait a year for this. I have to wait a week for this, whatever it's going to be. Um, I like shows that are designed to be binged because I can immerse myself in that world and with those characters. And the story just has a certain kind of impact for me personally that it may not have otherwise. Um, I, I like to revel in it. Now, the caveat I have to add to that is obviously one thing we're seeing right now with, with streaming and with sort of changes in episodic format, not all shows are meant to be binged. Um, not yeah. all shows will work as a binge depending on how the episodes are structured. So something is meant to be a standalone episode, you know, like a procedural, something like Law and Order, for example, where every episode is basically a standalone episode and there's not a whole lot of connective tissue between them. Those are better, you know, just one-off, right? You want to you wanna have your little adventure and move on with your life. If it's something like, oh gosh, what have I been binging lately? Star Trek Picard, uh, earlier this year was excellent. Uh, and that was a show I right. lived to binge because CBS sent it to me so I could actually watch all of it at once. Um, other shows, you know, Stranger Things, for example, on Netflix, where it comes out by season, not by episode. Um, right. I, love, I, I love just the grander plot. I love the way um, watching episodes in in close sequence to one another, how it changes certain details or it brings out certain elements that you might overlook otherwise. Certain shows play better when you binge them. Um, a show like Battlestar Galactica, for example, particularly in its later seasons, they actually play much, much better when you binge them than if you had to wait a week or a month sometimes between episodes. Um, right. I, I, love, I love the binging, but I think the most important thing is know what you're doing. So if you're going to write a show meant to be binged, know you're doing that, commit to it. If you're going to write an episodic show, know that and commit to it um, and sort of suffer the, the strengths and weaknesses of both of those. Now, what do you think of binging? I'm kind of in the same boat and part of it, but I've been like, I, I binged the love Victor the other day and it's okay. where my thoughts have started to come out on this because especially as we go through Black Lives Matter and all these other things we have going on, I'm kind of missing continuing the conversation. I thought yeah. I think things that are well um, worth talking about, like LGBT love and everything, that were done in 10 episodes in one day and we're going to stop the conversation on it now. And I yeah. kind of like some, some good good storytelling that, brings a bigger conversation. And there's not a lot of shows that do that. Granted, like you say, there's some that yeah. really need to be binged all at once that, that lend itself to that. But I don't know why. I've just kind of thought, I felt that way after Love, Victor. I kind of felt this was a, a really well done show. Balled my eyes out in episode eight when they all went to New York. Um, but, yeah. it was, but I would have liked to see the conversation go because now – and we did it like in middle of pride month and now it's done. And it's something I wish would have been spread out a little bit more. I just wish that they used anything that's really good that has kind of a message behind it. I think that yeah. gets lost in the binging part. That's my only downside of binging whatsoever. And like you said, that's there are some series that shouldn't be binged because I think they're just not well written that way. 
But uh, for the sure. most part, I'm about 90% of the time away with you. But just for some reason, yeah. watching the victory the other day kind of brought those feelings back to my mind. So I was wondering about that. Now, as a writer, do you is that a different way of writing? Because you're still telling the same story. How does it change your kind of cliffhanger at the end? Does it kind of change everything when you know it's going to be binged? How do you approach it from a writer's aspect? I mean, you, that's probably a better question for someone that actually writes binging shows. But in my observations <laughs> and based on, based on, you know, the people I've talked to, um, uh, like the showrunner of uh, uh, Brian Tannen, the showrunner of, of Love, Victor, for example, uh, it does change the approach when you know everything is going to be available at once. It does change sort of how you place cliffhangers, how you structure certain episodes, um, how you move certain elements of the plot around. Because, you know, the advantage of, of, of binging, again, is that you, you can go in an extreme direction and not have to pull back to balance it out, you know. So you can go down a dark rabbit hole in one episode and just keep going. And you don't have to bring in the lighter stuff to balance it out. Or if you want to do an episode that's just about, you know, a couple of characters in a precarious situation, you can do that. And you can either pepper it in over a few episodes, or you could do the whole episode just about those two characters. Um, you know, uh, David Lynch's uh, series, Twin Peaks, right. the return that came out a few years ago, was a show that somehow I think actually had it both ways because each episode had a very distinctive structure where it ended with a, a musical number um, and where certain plot elements would be picked up and you would get lots of character scenes and then you might get some kind of surrealistic plot movement. Um, if you sit down and you watch them all back to back, it is an amazing, amazing, psychotically surreal story. If you watch them in individual pieces, you can enjoy other elements of it. You can enjoy the characters in a different way. You can enjoy the levity of a certain episode or the darkness of a certain episode. Uh, you can savor the elements in different ways. And, you know, to my mind, the other advantage of, of binging is you can, t you can do it either way. If a show is, you know, out, if the full season comes out, you don't have to watch every episode at once. You can do it however you want to. Um, right. You can watch the whole season. You can go back and revisit it. You can do it nonlinear, you know, where, where you're jumping from episode to episode uh, and not necessarily watching them in order. It's, it's, such, it's such a time of freedom for that kind of writing. And as a novelist myself, you know, um, I, I, it, it feels more like people are writing novels for streaming now than they were writing television shows as I understood them when I was growing up. And even when I was in film school, mm. uh, everything's just a chapter along a greater arc. Um, and then, you know, uh, we're going to move from book one to book two, you know, went from season one to season two. So uh, I love that format uh, sort of back, you know, it's, it's sort of what, uh, television did in the 70s, you know, with a miniseries like Roots, where it was this epic novel for television, where flow would change and characters would, you know, be born or be killed off and come and go. And it was not this constant repetition of formula, which is what I always found uh, so unsatisfying about television. Right. Very cool. I, I love your insights and all that. Amazing. Um. Anything that we, that's on your hot button right now? I know that uh, Perry Mason, Matthew Rist, I've been in love with forever, and I guess he had a really good <laughs> um, premiere with that. Um, 
anything hitting you know, series wise we should be on the lookout for this summer or that's on your hot oh, button? Oh wow. List? That's a great question. Um right now I've been looking at a lot of indie films. Um in terms of series, Love Victor I think is is terrific. Um Gosh, I've been watching the new Penny Dreadful, City of Angels, uh, which works both as a binge or as a standalone episode uh, encounter. Uh, If you like horror, macabre, uh, mystery type stuff, it's very satisfying. Um, The best show, so I think the show that's been on my mind the most over the past few weeks, certainly with the different Black Lives Matter protests we've been seeing and the conversation about things like Juneteenth or the Tulsa Massacre, uh, the show eerily prophetic is from last fall. It's called Watchmen. Uh, It's a one-off series for HBO and it's based on the graphic novel that I mentioned earlier, but it's a sequel to the graphic novel. So um, it it features many of the same characters. It reimagines certain characters and somehow, you know, is extraordinarily prescient to everything we're talking about right now with uh, the sort of racial inequality we're seeing in the country and the conversation that's happening about that. Exactly, so. and I've had I've I've loved Regina King forever. Everything from oh freaking oh, she's just an amazing actress, always has been. But what was the uh, Miss Congeniality movies to pure drama? I mean, <laughs> she's just so good. She is so good. She's an amazing she actress, just oh. astonishing. And this is one of her best performances. I mean, she plays a superhero, mm-hmm. Regina King superhero. You don't need much more than that in life. It's that's about as good as it gets. So. Agreed. All right. I love it. Um, let's see if there's anything else we got to end here in the next five minutes. Um, I don't want to get you in trouble. What are your thoughts on oh Quibi? On Quibi? Can you give your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, I think I can give my thoughts on Quibi. Uh, I have to say the shows that I've seen on Quibi, Sasha Velour's Nightgowns, uh, Reno 911, uh, I basically liked it's an interesting experiment. And I think we don't really know what the results of that are yet. Um, you know, for your listeners that aren't familiar with Quibi, it's a new kind of streaming platform where things are done in 10 or 15 minute episodes rather than 30. Um, Quibi had the unfortunate, uh, the, you know, they have the misfortune of coming out when COVID started, when people I think are, are wanting something right. a little bit more substantive when they have a greater appetite for consuming uh, shows. So, uh, you know, it's a platform that's designed to be viewed on the go. It's nobody's on the, uh, you know, on the go right now, really. Um, I say give it a year and we can revisit uh, to see how it's done. Now, that being said, I've seen plenty of digital series, streaming series on YouTube or on other streaming platforms that only have 10-minute episodes and that work beautifully, you know, um, that are moving, that are thrilling. So... I think there is potential there. So much of it, I think, is going to come down to when people start watching things again on the go. And it's just going to come down to the quality of the storytelling. You know, give somebody a great story. It doesn't matter if it's five pages or if it's 5,000 pages. They're going to eat it up. So, Right. That's always true. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, cool. David, it's been an amazing conversation. I just can talk to you Thank all day you. long. This is my this is my jam. Thanks so much for being on the Left is Straight show, my friend. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, Scott. Thank you for having me. Uh, have me back anytime. Um, yes, it's, it's been delightful. Your, Thank you. Uh, 
Oh, thank you. Give everyone your social media so they can figure out where these Halloween costumes came from. And uh, <laughs> let everyone know where they can find your books. Uh, well, you can find my books at fine retailers. Uh, Amazon's a great place to start. Uh, all three of them are available there. And uh, I believe they're all still available on Barnes Noble. I have not heard otherwise. Uh, BarnesNoble.com. Um, my social media handle for Instagram and uh, for Twitter is the Gay Magneto, all one word. Uh, so go ahead and hit me up on there uh, with your questions. And uh, yeah, uh, thanks so much. That little really website they it. might be able to find an article or two from you. Queerty.com. Uh, that's Q U E E R T Y. Dot com. Uh, visit, uh, check out all our work. We have so many talented people working with us right now and so much great content that I'm really proud of. So, uh, yeah, it's Pride Month. Show it. There you go. You should be proud, my friend. I, I steal from it often. I get great show ideas. I use <laughs> you for my host chats every day. So I appreciate everything that you and your team are doing over there. Thank you so much for that. Stay on the line for me, Dave. We're going to play out with a song here in just a second. Tomorrow, guys, we're going to have two live interviews for you. I'm going to have um, Matt Rebakoff. I think that's how I pronounce his name. He has a great food enterprise called Mr. Eatwell. We're going to talk about for all my foodie friends out there. And then we're going to have from David's Neck of the Woods over in uh, Channel 7 in Los Angeles. We're going to have Carl Schmidt on. He is an amazing host and does special features for ABC LA there and different parts of ABC Digital. They are doing a three-hour virtual Pride this Saturday to celebrate the 50th anniversary of what would have been LA's Pride had it gone through. But they are going to do a three-hour televised version that Carl is going to host. And we're going to talk to him all about it tomorrow. They have Katy Perry and all sorts of people from Pose. It's going to be some great conversation starting tomorrow night. Be on the lookout for that. And, of course, we're going to have our special correspondents, Jeff and Josh, with their J&J Buzz pop culture segment. So good show tomorrow. David, amazing show today. Thank you so much. We're going to Thank play you. out here to uh oh looks like i'm gonna have to press a button because my intern got kicked out i'm glad i looked at my notes oh, no. we're gonna play out with a little bit of kenneth mogan real me you're listening to the leftist Straight show we'll be back tomorrow guys have a great night i live my life in the shadows always trying to hide didn't think i was Oh my song.